economy is crumbling. They say it's had its day. The workers are all rumbling. Revolution's on the way. But I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain. And before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell. He went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of reading Melody Baker. I'm singing down the dunker. Welcome to Radical, a podcast about the radical aspects of politics, music and football. I'm your host, Cas Mudde. My guest today is Christophe Schaffrelo. Christophe is a Siri CNRS Senior Research Fellow who teaches in three different schools at Sciences Po in Paris. He's a world-leading scholar of Indian politics, from its foreign policy to its political sociology. In 2020, he was elected president of the French Association of Political Science. And last year, he published the incredibly detailed but still very readable book, Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy, with Princeton University Press. Today, we will speak about this terrifying study of contemporary India. Welcome to the podcast, Christophe. Thank you for inviting me, Cass. So the first question is, what was the first sports team you ever supported? Oh, that was not football club. I'm a fan of this soccer team for 45 years now. They used to play elegantly, more elegantly than <laughs> any other team when I was a child. That's why. Right. What is your favorite political song? Well, spontaneously, I think about John Bay's Ears to You, Nicola and Bart, the song of a film that I saw when I was a child again. So finally, what is your favorite political book? Well, that's a difficult question, really, because there are so many great books. But, you know, Tocqueville's De la Démocratie en Amérique, A Frenchman for a Change, uh, <laughs> 1835, you know, a pioneering book. The first book doing political sociology, really. Uh -huh. It's a bit controversial. Tocqueville sometimes indulges in some kind of culturalism, uh, attributing democracy to Protestantism, for instance. <laughs> But most of the time, he relies on sociological explanations before sociology and political science were invented. That's mm -hmm. really a tour de force. Yeah. Right. So let's first talk a little bit about the ideological and organizational background of Modi. What is Hindutva? Is it a form of religious fundamentalism or more of ethnic nationalism? Well, it's a mixture of both. I would say it's an ethno-religious nationalist ideology. I think you have to bracket together ethnicity and religion. Religion does not play such a key role, really. When you look at the charter, the book, where Indurva was codified in 1923 by Savarkar, the first ideologue, you realize that Hindus for him do not form a community of believers, but a people. No, they are the descendants of the original inhabitants of India, blood mm -hmm. and race. In fact, he uses the expression Hindu race all the time. And the second pillar, of course, of Indurva is territory the Indian territory, that is a secret territory, Punya Bhumi. And that's why I think Indurva has affinities with Zionism, a lot of affinities. Now, Hindutva is an ideology, but there's also a, a Hindutva movement. Can you say a little bit more about the movement and where the BJP, Modi's party, fits into that broader movement? Yeah, that's a very important question. And I have always insisted since my first book in the mid-90s on this. BGP is only the tip of the iceberg. 
and it's part of a much larger movement. In fact, BJP was born in 1980 when the Hindu nationalist movement was born in the 20s. The modern organization, the crucible of Hindutva is the RSS, which is an organization that was started in 1925 and that was not political in the beginning. You know, it was initiated to defend Hindus against Muslims, to train Hindus physically and ideologically. And the founder, Edgevar, created a network of local branches, aided each of them by full-timers known as Pracharaks, in order to crisscross the territory of India, to conquer society not the state. It was not state-oriented. It was society-oriented. And to convert the whole of India, at least the Hindus, to this social-psychological or psychosociological endeavor. They turned to politics much later when an RSS member, Godse, killed Mahatma Gandhi in 48. And then the movement was banned. Nehru, prime minister at that time, banned the movement, put 20,000 RSS members behind bars, and they discovered that nobody spoke in their favor in parliament. There was no political party. There was no political voice to defend them. And that's how they decided to create a party that was not BJP at that time. It was the ancestor of BJP, Janasang, that saw the light of the day in 1951. But it was only one of the front organizations that RSS developed after independence, because in addition to a party, they created a workers' union, a peasants' union, a students' union. And each time, always, at the helm of these organizations, you have Pracharaks. You have full-time organizers trained by RSS. Right. And I think that's important to stress that what they call the family, the Sang Parivar, is a very broad movement. And it's not the political party that is at the helm, but it is this extra-parliamentary organization, the RSS, which to a certain extent is very similar to social movements, subcultures of the early 20th century in Europe, where, for example, the trade union was at the helm of the socialist group rather than the party. Now, to put this in perspective, of course, India is a massive country with, I saw, about 1.4 billion people is estimated, or 1.3 what is the size of this movement? What is the size of the BJP in terms of members of the RSS and members cadres? Because that is also very different from our European radical right parties. Definitely. It's very difficult to give a figure for the war of the Song Parivar because of the hundreds of of front organizations really are doing the work among peasants, among tribals, among low caste people, among lawyers, ex-servicemen, you know. But RSS itself has something like 50,000 shakas, branches, and probably more than 3 million members if we go by the official figures. But again, this is really only the core organization. And if you add up all the front organizations, it's a massive, massive network. Well, I don't know any organization that has continuously grown for 100 years. I right. don't know any other organization in the world who has achieved that. Yeah, that's a very good point. Now, you've already said that the BJP predates Modi. What was the role of the BJP in Indian politics before Modi took over in 2014? 
Well, it was mostly an opposition party. You know, it was a party that had constantly been opposed to the Congress party, had ruled India almost without any interruption of more than two years between 47 and 96. So it was really an opposition party with a microscopic party in the beginning. They had two members of parliament in 84 two out of 544. <laughs> so it grew in a rather meteoric way on the basis of a protest movement. You know, it's a, an opposition party that conquered the street before conquering the parliament. And they did it gradually in the late 90s by forming coalitions. We are part of the ruling coalition in 1989. And then they could form the government they were the largest party in parliament in 1998 for six years. They ruled India, but with the support of partners. And these partners were not happy with some of the aspect of the program. So it was a very, I would say, diluted version of Indudva that we saw at that time. And then they were again in opposition for 10 years. And then Modi took over. And so who is Narendra Modi? How did he rise to the top of the BJP? Well, this is exactly the theme of my book because it needs a close analysis. Modi is unique, unprecedented in the history of India because he was the first RSS member to be seconded to BJP and supervise the rise of BJP to power in Gujarat, his home state. And then he was appointed chief minister of Gujarat in 2001, whereas he had never contested any election. So he was really parachuted from the organization. And soon after that, as chief minister of Gujarat, he presided over an anti-Muslim pogrom that resulted in the death of, again, an unprecedented number of casualties. 2,000 people died at that time. He was, by the way, denied visa to enter the US and Europe immediately afterwards. And in the election campaign that followed, he projected himself as the champion of the Hindus and he won a majority. And he repeated this achievement in 2007, in 2012, before shifting to the national scene. So this pedigree is really new and his uh, trajectory yeah, is completely unprecedented. One thing the book makes really clear is that Modi is a formidable campaigner. The magnitude of his campaigns, which include hologram speeches, and the extreme cost make even the U.S. presidential campaigns look amateuristic. Can you tell us a bit more about Modi's 2014 and 2019 electoral campaigns? In what ways did they stand out from the Indian and the, even the global norms? Yes, this is indeed a key question. And these two campaigns were similar in the sense that Modi was the one-point program of BJP on both occasions. And he was indeed a formidable campaigner in the way he relates to the people. He speaks to them. He establishes a kind of personal relation with the people. Something, by the way, he continues to do by speaking on the radio every month for a long time to the poor, because the poor listen to the radio. They don't have TV sets. Huh? Mm -hmm. That's something Modi achieves by using different repertoires. You know, is the strong man defending India against Pakistan and Islamism or even Islam? 
but he's also a kind of sage, a guru, giving advice pertaining to family life, private matters. And at the same time, he claims that he is one of us, one of the people, a man of the people. And the rather unsophisticated manners and plebeian background, he also assumes, make this point more credible. Modi is the first BGP leader coming from a low caste group. That's also a very important dimension mm-hmm. because he can be a man of the people because he comes from the people. Mm-hmm. But if we return to your question about the 2014 and 2019 campaigns, what we need to add is that he was not successful only because of his charisma and capacity uh, to relate to the people. He had a right-hand man. He had Amit Shah. Amit Shah is the great organizer who selected the candidates in a very, very shrewd manner, you know, by nominating people coming from very specific caste groups, for instance. Not only that, Modi benefited from the huge assets, financial assets, that BGP could collect. The business milieu gave a lot of money, and they spent something like $3.5 billion in 2019. And not only that, but he also benefited from the bias of the mainstream, so-called mainstream media. And that's something, of course, you can also attribute to the support businessmen gave, because businessmen mm-hmm. are also at the helm of many of these mainstream media. So he won in 2014 and 2019 because of his personal skills, but for all these reasons as well. As you said, he was crucial to the BJP victory, particularly also integrating new groups, which gave him a lot of power within the BJP and to a certain extent within the broader Hindutva movement. How has he changed the BJP? A lot. A lot. You know, BJP used to be ruled in a rather collegial manner since the 80s. It had never been a one-man show. And this is evidenced by the way Vajpayee and Advani alternated in power for more than three decades. And the important decisions, you know, the decision-making process involved many senior party members. When Modi took over, he got rid of this old world, including Advani, who had promoted him in the first place. And in 2014, he appointed Amit Shah, his right-hand man in Gujarat since the 2000s, as party president. And BGP became the property of these two men. BGP is fully owned by these two men since then. A second change, very important change that also took place in the wake of Amitra's appointment was the fact that BGP used to relate, to report to RSS. They had to report to the mother organization. For instance, when they appointed nominated candidates at the time of election, chief ministers in each state had to show the list of the candidates to the local representatives of RSS. Modi had stopped that in Gujarat and continued to emancipate himself from RSS. That's really a big transformation. And even some leaders, Indudva leaders, wonder what will happen after Modi leaves the scene because it's such a transformatory moment that Mm -hmm. BGP is experiencing. You really wonder how the party will continue to remain hegemonic after he goes. We'll return to that, but let's first talk about how Modi has changed India. Yeah, well, again, tremendously. First, Muslims have become second-class citizens, de facto, 
because they are constantly harassed by Hindu vigilantes, more or less related to RSS, and the police in BGP-ruled states, that is more than half of the states of the Indian Federation. Muslims cannot find a flat in mixed neighborhoods. They are targeted by reconversion drives. Some Muslim farmers have been lynched because they were suspected of taking cows to the slaughterhouse, and so on and so forth. So this is a de facto transformation of a minority into a group that is subordinated. And in some BGP rule states, it's not only de facto, but also de jure, because some laws have been passed making, for instance, interreligious marriages almost impossible. But the other thing that has changed is that the old checks and balances of the Indian democracy have been affected by authoritarian practices. You know, key institutions have lost their autonomy. The Central Bureau of Investigation, the National Investigation Agency, the Election Commission, the Central Vigilance Commission, you name one. And in each and every institution, bureaucrats have been replaced when they were not pliable enough. And thirdly, the great Indian Supreme Court, which used to be admired the world over, has lost its independence. The government is now appointing judges, and it grants post-retirement positions to these judges when they sympathize with these views. So as a result, one of the pillars of India's democracy, the Supreme Court, has not made any decision against the government since 2017. Most of the time, the judges abstain from issuing any verdict. They, they have not said anything about the Citizenship Amendment Act, which in fact makes only non-Muslim refugees eligible to Indian citizenship. They have right. not said anything either on the abolition of the autonomy of Jammu and Kashmir. They don't say a word. And I would add quickly one more point. Civil society is under attack. Many NGOs cannot receive money from outside India. Journalists are sued for sedition and put behind bars before the courts grant them bail or not. University presidents fight dissenting voices. Income tax raids are orchestrated against opposition politicians. Um, this is not civil society, but it's, if you want, political society. This is also something to emphasize. Right. And of course, a lot of these things are things that we see in countries that we generally call openly authoritarian, like Russia, for example. And yet, despite all of this, Modi was invited to U.S. President Joe Biden's 2021 Summit for Democracy and is regularly courted by Western leaders, most recently by the now ex-Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson. What explains this embrace of Modi? It cannot just be that India is a big country because so is Brazil, yet President Jair Bolsonaro is treated much less friendly. Yeah, well, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle to some extent, but I would say we can analyze this by invoking three reasons. The first one, I think the West has not realized yet the magnitude of the changes because India still organizes elections. So you have this facade of democracy. You have this demotic dimension of democracy that shows that, well, of course, elections are not a level playing field, but Modi has not stolen any election either. And the popularity of Modi is beyond doubt. And therefore, he is the man of the people. It's very difficult to consider that India is not a democracy if you look at it from that point of view. 
But I would argue also that another reason is that the West looks at India as the balancing force vis-à-vis China. You know, India is in Asia, the country the West is investing in as a counterweight to China. And it's mm-hmm. a pillar of the Indo-Pacific strategies. I think that's a very important factor too. And the third factor is it's a market, at least potentially. It's a huge market. Well, for weapons, it's already a big market for France, for instance. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons also why Westerners will look their shoes when some controversies might arise on new market rights in India. At the same time, I would say that compared to two years ago, for instance, the U.S. Congress, the European Parliament are voicing concerns and it may gain momentum. But of course, for the moment, these assemblies are completely powerless. This also has a little bit to do with how Modi presents himself, right? And particularly... He has this agenda, which clearly is nationalist, but he also has, even in Gujarat already, presented himself as an economic developer, which meant in particular opening up markets, which of course is something that the West likes, but also to a certain extent always associates with democracy. There is this strong idea within the West, particularly in the U.S., that capitalism almost by definition also means democracy. We see this with some other leaders as well, like Orban used to always have a very different discourse when he spoke in Brussels than when he would speak in Budapest. Is this still the case with Modi? Because the other thing that you see with populist leaders in power, or generally with authoritarian type leaders in power, is the longer they are in power, the more complete their power is, the less they play roles. Has Modi become more openly Hindutva in his international politics, or does he still play this international pro-market businessman in the West and more of a Hindutva leader in India? Yes, I would say the second option is more true to some extent, because Yes, when Modi speaks at Davos or in the G20 meetings, whatever, he tries hard to attract investments, foreign direct investments, by saying this is the place from where you will do business and re-export, make in India. This is the slogan, this is the motto. Well, if you look at the real situation, you see that India has become more protectionist. And you also see that instead of being market friendly, it's business friendly in the sense that Modi is helping few businessmen, cronies, who are really flourishing under his rule, which is at the expense of competition and at the expense of foreign investments and foreign investors in the first place. But on the other side of your question remains very pertinent because he is certainly more Hindu publicly than he used to be. In 2014, he tried to somewhat minimize this communal identity and appear as the modernizer, the development man, the Vikas Purush. Now you see him looking like a sage, a guru with a longer beard, and 
the high priest of India who, for instance, inaugurated the Ayodhya temple, the temple that will be built on the remnants of a mosque that had been demolished in 1992. He was there for laying the foundational stone, the first stone of this temple, reciting the Sanskrit shlokas. Priests are supposed to say for such a ceremony, for such a sacred ceremony. So, yeah, he is now appearing as the Hindu leader people already considered he was. But he was a little bit shy of appearing so openly as the Hindu leader of India. Now, you've already spoken to how transformative Modi is as a leader for both the BJP and to India. In the book, you emphasize that he added populism to the BJP, which had always a very strong elitist ideology, which he could do because of his poor background, which actually is pretty unique among populist leaders. Almost all of them come from the outsider insiders. What will his legacy be for the BJP and for India, you think? Well, for BJP, clearly, the main legacy will be centralization and personalization of power, which means a form of disinstitutionalization of power, something, incidentally, Congress experienced under Indira Gandhi. Mm -hmm. She had done the same thing. And Congress never recovered from that because it was emptied out from the inside. When you do not let any local leader grow, when you systematically impose your people from Delhi, you make the party redundant and it loses its vitality. So after Modi leaves the scene, BJP may be the instrument of Amit Shah, possibly, or the RSS will regain the upper end and rebuild the party. That's another possibility. But the legacy will have to be certainly monitored for the party to recover from these years. For India, well, first, secularism is getting to be replaced by a form of Hindu majoritarianism. And reduced minorities are bound to become second-class citizens de facto or even de jure for the coming years. That's the number one legacy. The number two, in terms of political regime, India is shifting towards what is known as electoral authoritarianism. Now, elections are not a level playing field, and between elections, the rulers do not observe democratic processes. That's typical of this new regime. But I would like to emphasize a third and last consequence on the economic and socio-economic front. No, because as I've said, economically, the regime relies on a handful of oligarchs, cronies, who help the BGP financially in exchange of favors. You know, in return, they are paid back by all kinds of favors, including loans by public banks. When the privatization of ports, airports take place, only half a dozen of men benefit. So the structure of India's capitalism is changing very fast. As evident from the meteoric rise of Gautam Adani, for instance, who is now richer than Bill Gates and, yeah, one of the new rich leaders of Indian capitalism. That's one. Socioeconomically, the new dispensation is resulting in an unprecedented rise of inequalities. You know, inequalities were declining in India. During the 10 years of his prime ministership, Manmohan Singh had reduced the number of poor people by something between 150 million and 200 million. Huge achievement. And now, for the first time in history, 
we see the percentage of people living below the poverty line increasing. And that's absolutely unprecedented. And it's partly due to the pro-rich policies that you find, for instance, in the taxation system. And something you also find in the dilution of positive discrimination. Now, positive discrimination, caste-based positive discrimination was definitely a success story in India. Mm-hmm. It's now diluted in, in many different ways, partly because of privatization, partly because the public sector is shrinking. So that's one of the legacies that I would really emphasize, the social consequences of this regime. So I noticed that you don't speak much about gender in your book, yet in describing the party, it's all men. Now, in terms of gender relations, India pre-BJP rule was not doing particularly well, to put it mildly. Has the BJP changed anything? Because in general, nationalist organizations have a very specific and to a certain extent limited role for women as the womb of the nation. Do you see those things in Modi and in Hindutva, or has he just pretty much kept the gender roles as they were? You're right. The situation was already very, very bleak. You have always had a very small percentage of members of parliament and members of state assemblies coming from the other gender, as we say, or as they say. It has not improved indeed. BGP is a men-dominated party. You have only 6% of the members of the state assemblies who are women, very small percentage. And in parliament, it's slightly better, but not more than 15%. The paradox is that in spite of this, women support BJP, sometimes even more than men. It's something you can explain by the rather conservative attitude of women regarding religion. Mm -hmm. Hindutva is seen as Hinduism. To vote for Modi means you protect Hinduism. And women in the family are the conduits for the Hindu tradition. Right. They are supposed to be the custodian of the traditions. That's the main explanation. And the fact that BJP has a very conservative traditionalist view of the role of women is not therefore counterproductive. It's not something women voters will resent, on the contrary. Right. And we see that also in Poland, for example, particularly among elder women. So finally, what is the greatest misunderstanding about Modi's India? Well, that's a very good question. And I would say that we probably focus too much on identity politics and on ethno-religious ideology when we try to analyze BJP and, and Modi's rise to power. You know, we miss an important social dynamic. The subtext of Hindutva is elite revenge, social elite revenge. You know, in 2014, upper caste have rallied around Modi to resist the rise of Dalits, the act untouchables, the rise of other backward classes, low caste groups, which were replacing Brahmins and Rajputs in state governments, in even, of course, the bureaucracy because of quotas. So the subtext of Hindutva is social, is sociological. Upper caste could capitalize on identity politics, on Hindutva, for containing the rise of plebeians. And it worked. It worked because you have seen Brahmins and Rajputs and upper caste back 
in large numbers in parliament, in government, at the state level, at the national level, because they could tell the plebeians, don't fight the Brahmin, don't fight the upper caste, fight the real order, and the real order is the Muslim. Right. And I'm sure that quite a lot of Americans and Brazilians will see some similarities here. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Christoph. Thank you, guest. You can follow Christophe Jaffolo on Twitter at at C. And please buy and read his very important book, Modi's India, Hindu Nationalism and the Rise of Ethnic Democracy, published by Princeton University Press in 2021, at or through your independent bookseller. Thank you for listening to Radical. The music is from the Gonads, with the classic song Karl Marx supported Millwall, and I'm your host, Kas Mudde. If you like the episode, please subscribe to Radical on your podcast platform of choice, and don't forget to rate us. Till the next time. The economy is crumbling, they say it's at its day. The workers are all rumbling, revolution's on the way, but I could never be a Marxist. It goes against the grain, and before you call me past it, give me a chance to explain. You say, come up to Port Newell, he went with Danny Baker. So you silly disco songs of Rini Melody Baker, I'm singing down the dunker, playing with his beard. No wonder that that's Capitale turned out a little weird.